just want to encourage you, if you've not grabbed one, we have sheets in the back. Sheets in the back there. We're going to be making a lot of references to different end times events, etc. Encourage you to grab one of those. Matthew 24. Let's do the smart thing and let's pray. Lord, busy next few weeks coming up. Lots of opportunities to represent you. We ask for your blessing upon that. I just think of the business going on back in the back with Christmas program, etc. I pray bless Tony and the kids back there. Help us to keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you. And as we just get into these uh, end time events here, just you teach, we listen. Let your spirit guide and direct in your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 24. Continue our study here through the book of Matthew. Now, If you weren't with us last week, we started our study here in a little bit of an end times. We've been going through the book of Matthew for a while. And when we get to Matthew 24 and 25, there's a couple chapters where Jesus describes, if you will, the end of the world and what that looks like. Now, the background from this comes from verses 1 through 3 of Matthew 24. The disciples are walking and they walk by the temple. And as we mentioned last week, the temple was this beautiful building, just very impressive building. Herod did a remodeling project on the temple that took about 80 years, and it was just this gorgeous building. So as the disciples are walking by, they're kind of ooing and eyeing over the temple a little bit, and Jesus stops and says, yeah, this temple that you're focused on, it's going to all be destroyed. So that leads to verse 3 of Matthew 24. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Please note that this conversation that now happens is a private conversation between Christ and the disciples. What you see here is when you start getting at end times events, you can go up to a non-believer. And you can try to talk to them about end times events, and maybe they'll listen. But what I've noticed over the years is this. If I go up to somebody who's not saved, and I try to say to them, hey, Jesus is coming, get ready. They don't care. They don't know who Jesus is, or they know who Jesus is, and they choose not to have a relationship with Jesus. doesn't carry any weight with them. So therefore, this is a conversation for us as believers to know and understand the times. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that we're supposed to understand the season that we live in. The seasons that we live in. We know what's happening and be prepared for what's coming. We had our first taste of fall slash winter this weekend. That should not have surprised you. You know that it's coming, so you prepare for it. I've learned over the years to hopefully get a little bit ahead of the game. Sometimes we put a snow fence up at our house, and we had a 70-degree day a couple weeks ago. I grabbed one of the boys, and I said, we're going to go drive posts for the snow fence. We're going to wear shorts and T-shirts because it's nice. I know it's coming, so why not go out when it's nice and be prepared? We know the season. What else this helps us do is to stay focused and faithful on what we're supposed to be doing. If you remember correctly last week, we shared a couple of verses about end times. One in 1 John chapter 2 that says end times has a purifying effect on you. Meaning you know Jesus is returning, so you want to be living a life for him. It purifies. It makes you think about what you do, what you say, how you act. Number two, it gives you a perspective. We say all the time at home. Don't get worked up about that. And the whole scheme of heaven and hell doesn't matter. Or Jesus may be returning. When you have that perspective, when things happen in this world, you have a bad day at work. There's maybe a health issue that's going on. Or there's a family issue. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it struggles. But in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, you keep your eyes on Christ. And it gives you a perspective. And lastly, it gives you a purpose. You're not just here for no reason. There's a purpose, and part of that purpose is you know what is coming. You know how this story plays out. And so there's a purpose in how I live and how I act and what I do. So there's a purifying effect, there's a perspective, and there's a purpose. So with that being said, don't go to the extremes. When we talk about end times, it's easy to go to extremes. Extreme one is that's all you talk about. All you think about is antichrist, who could it be? And you're so focused on the future 
that you're not really also focusing on the idea right here, right now of spreading the gospel. The other extreme is, I don't need to know about it. I don't want to know about it. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand. We're not going to be around. The Bible doesn't want us to be ignorant on these things. The Bible wants us to have an understanding. So with that being said, let's just look biblically at what this is. Now, before we get into it, I want to give you one point here. Can you go with me to Matthew 24? Jump to the end, verse 45. Verse 45. Keep this in the back of your mind as we're going through it. Verse 45 of Matthew 24. Who then is a faithful and wise servant... Whom his master made ruler of his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But that evil servant says in my, his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him in an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint his, him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the perspective you have. I want us to be today, verse 45, the faithful and wise servant. The faithful and wise servant that is focused on his return, planning for his return, preparing for his return. Because the other side of this is what? Verse 48, the evil servant. Focused on himself, not the things of the Lord. Keep your perspective where it needs to be. The reason we're going through these things is to constantly remind us there once again is a reason and a purpose for what we're doing. And the whole scheme of heaven and hell, that's what we want to focus on. I'm going to make reference a few times this morning to Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is a parable of the sower and the seed. And if you remember correctly in that parable, there's the seed that falls on the ground that begins to sprout up, but it's choked out. Choked out by weeds, choked out by life. That happens to a lot of believers. They get choked out. They get so worked up on what's going on now, they lose that eternal perspective. Let's plan to be the faithful and wise servant who is focused on this, understand what the end is looks like, and therefore that changes how we live right here and now. So with that introduction, let's do a quick reminder of one thing and then jump into it. Alan, can you do that first slide there real quick? This is just a quick reminder from what we went through last week, a couple points, because we'll make reference to this a couple times here. It's the difference between the second coming and the rapture. If you've got your white sheets in front of you, you can look at the prophetic timeline that we laid out. The first event coming up is the rapture. Just a reminder, this is where Christ meets us in the air, and by us I mean the body of Christ, born-again believers. Born-again believers. We meet us in the air. He returns to take us home. We go home with Christ. Amen. Second event is the second coming. If you look at your timelines that I gave you, that's at the end of the seven-year period. This is where Christ literally comes back and steps foot on the earth. Christ returns to reign, and we reign with him. He reigns for a thousand years in something called the millennial reign of Christ. He literally sets foot on this earth and will come back and rule and reign. I've mentioned this to you before. One of my favorite verses is in Isaiah, where it talks about how Jesus will lead up um, Bible studies, if you will, at the temple. That you'll be able to go during that time and hear Christ teach. Now we continue to return with him and rule and reign with him as born again believers, the body of Christ. So just a quick reminder there between second coming and rapture. Because I will make reference to those here this morning. And you got your timelines in front of you. So with that being said, let's remind ourselves. Last week, verse 8. These are the beginning of sorrows, the birth pains, the pre-labor. What we talked about last week, wars and rumors of war, pestilences and violence and persecution. And we talked about how people's faith starts to grow cold. Those are all the pre-labor building up to this final judgment that's coming. And we talked about how we're experiencing that right now. 
Now what we're going to get into here this morning is what does the future look like? And the first event is verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. God wants us to have an understanding. So now we need to talk about this abomination of desolation. Look at the next slide here real quick. The the abomination of desolation is this basically, if you will, this tips the scales. This is the event that just says it's so much that's going on. What happens in the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist goes into the temple that is going to be rebuilt. Right now, there is not a temple over in Israel. Now, they want to build a temple. This is open information. You can get online and see the pictures. They've already got the garb taken care of for the priest. They're trying to train up the priesthood. They're trying to get the utensils around that are needed for the temple. They want to rebuild the temple. Now, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus and has not had a temple since then. So we've gone 2,000 years without a temple. This temple is going to be rebuilt. And when this temple is rebuilt, halfway through the tribulation period, that's a seven-year period of judgment if you look at your sheets, there's this event called the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist goes into the temple and he sets himself up as, as God. Now, let's talk about who the Antichrist is. Just a couple quick points about the Antichrist. First one, he's empowered by Satan. He will be a human. He will be a human man, but he will be empowered by Satan. He will persecute the saints. That's probably not a strong enough word, persecute. He have a holy hatred, if you will, of the saints. He will blaspheme God. He will be a political power. He will unite the world in this power. He will be aligned with religious Babylon. See, once the rapture happens, there's still going to be people left on this earth that are going to claim to be believers and claim to know God. There's going to still be a religious system left on this earth. And we call that religious Babylon. Because the Bible refers to Babylon as this evil, corrupt system in the world. So there's going to be this religious system that's still left. There's going to be a fake resurrection, it looks like. You can check that out later on if you want in Revelation 13. It seems like he has this wound that he should die from and possibly even pretends to die from, but he's miraculously, if you will, resurrected. You can see how he forms this really unholy trinity. You have Satan, you have the Antichrist, and there's a third member called the false prophet. And we won't get into the false prophet here right now, but the false prophet's job is to really promote the Antichrist. And they form this really unholy trinity. And so there's this idea of this maybe fake resurrection. I don't want to get into a lot of detail about the Antichrist because he's not the main emphasis this morning. But it's important to understand who he is and he'll be in power for about three and a half years. I have to share this real quick. This is one of my favorite stories about it. I run into a lot of people that make it almost their goal, dare I say, to find out who the Antichrist is. Don't worry about that. Thessalonians seems to teach us that the Antichrist is not going to be revealed until the Holy Spirit is removed. There's no reason to go around looking and trying to figure it out. Every single time we elect a new president, somebody tells me it's the Antichrist. Every single time. My favorite story that I heard, I got saved back in 93, and this would have been right around 93 or 94. I was listening to a Christian teacher, and he claimed that JFK was still on life support in the basement in Washington. And they were just waiting for the right time to bring him out. Because he was going to be the Antichrist. It is so ridiculous. Don't worry about it. You keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. But we need to have an understanding of who this man is. So what is this abomination of desolation? Uh, Next slide, please, Alan. This abomination of desolation is the Antichrist goes into this rebuilt temple and declares himself to be God. See, what happens is there's going to be this war that's going on. And the Antichrist comes in as the Savior, if you will, and saves Jerusalem. 
if you will. Russia comes down from the north. There's a group of Muslim nations that come up from the south. The Antichrist defeats one. God brings fire down on heaven from another. And so what happens is he rides this victory into the temple, and he does 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And at this point, Israel goes, we messed up. This is not the guy we thought he was. This is not our Messiah. This is not our Savior. And if you will, this abomination of desolation is the tipping point in the scale where from this point forward, everything goes downhill. I mean, it's bad now. As we talked about last week, if you look at the first uh, thir- excuse me, 14 verses of Matthew 24, it's bad now. There's a whole other level that happens after this abomination of desolation. Next slide real quick. What happens is this. God's wrath is poured out on the earth and man. You have something called the trumpet judgments and bold judgments. The Jews will see that they were wrong and the Antichrist now will come to attack them. They miraculously go into the wilderness where God protects them for three and a half years. And now the Antichrist turns on religious Babylon, destroys her. And the last three and a half years is just judgment after judgment that's happening on this world. Now, it's God cleaning house. Now, before you stop and think that sounds very unloving... Please remember the escape routes that God has given us. He said, this is coming. Be prepared. So that's why you have the rapture. That's a loving God that gives you an escape route. Plus, also, people will still get saved during this tribulation period. We know that. We see the two witnesses having a ministry, the 144,000 Jews. You can read all this in Revelation. God still is loving them. Remember, we say this all the time out here. Wherever you see judgment in the Bible, you also see grace. So God's grace is being shown even in this judgment. So that's the abomination of desolation, middle part of the tribulation. It's the tipping point that sets off the rest of these prophetic events. Now as we read about this, please remember this is written to a Jewish audience. So you're going to see a lot of references that we may not really get. Sabbath, rooftops, Judea. It's written to a Jewish audience. We as the church, the body of Christ, we're we're out of here. So he's talking to these Jews that are left... And these Jews that got fooled by the Antichrist. What do we do now? Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. Nor, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. This is an awful time. Time that is so bad, verse 21, has never been like this before on the earth. Like I said, go read those events there that talked about in Revelation, God's judgment on this earth. It's an awful, horrible time. And verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, nobody would survive. But God brings an end to it. He stops at the second coming, at the battle of Armageddon. Christ returns, if you look at your sheets there, the second coming, which then takes us into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. But it's this time of judgment, this awful time, and he stops it for the elect's sake. Now, the elect is an interesting word. Most of the time when we think of the elect, we think of the church, us. Elect just means chosen ones. But if you look in the Old Testament, the elect is also Israel. 
Isaiah 45, Isaiah 65. There's this elect that God says, these are the ones I'm dealing with at that moment, at that time. And this is what he's kind of referring to there. So the world is literally falling apart. Judgments on the earth. Judgments on man. There's all this going on. But there's also the spiritual falling away also going on. Look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to declare, if possible, excuse me, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. There if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For whomever, excuse me, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together and judgment. So what he's saying is this, during this time of falling apart in the world, there's going to be this also false spiritual. Think about this. Let's be optimistic. Millions, maybe billions of people just instantaneously disappear in the rapture. The world is left now. What is going on? They're, they're, they're wondering. They're confused. The Bible says the Antichrist will use a great lie, a great deception. He's going to have to explain, or hopefully these millions of people have gone. But at that moment, people are also going to start searching and seeking. There's going to be some pretty tangible evidence that there's a God. What are they going to do with that information? Well, as they are seeking him, guess what's going to happen? Verses 23 on, the enemy is going to do a lot of false Christ, false prophets, false everything. People are going to be chasing around. Hey, Jesus is returning. Well, I hear he's in the desert. They're going to go there. Well, I hear he's over here. They're going to go over there. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't. You're not going to miss me. Why? Because look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Imagine you're outside on a moonless night, just completely black night. And all of a sudden, the biggest lightning bolt you've ever seen flashes across the sky. It lights up the whole outside. It lights up your house, etc. You can't miss it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. You're not going to miss my return. It can't happen secretly. It can't happen privately. Now you may say, well, that's kind of a silly point. That's what some of the false religions teach. It's that Jesus has already returned. He's being hidden in a room right now. Being ready to be revealed at a certain time. That's what they teach. That's what they believe. So why do we study these things out? Because you're going to run into somebody one day. And if the subject comes up of end times and the world falling apart, they may say, drop some line about Jesus has already returned. And he's being hidden in a room and waiting. And I hope at that moment, the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance, lightning, can't miss it. Something's not right here. Jesus is not trying to hide his return. He says, you'll be able to see it. And when that comes, there's going to be that judgment that is coming with it. He's making it clear and evident. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moons will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Christ says once again, you're not going to miss me. Verse 30, you're going to see the sign of me in my second coming here. And also nature is going to do this. There's going to be signs in heaven. Verse 29, the moon, the stars, etc. Revelation 8 talks about this. Revelation 6 talks about this. All these signs that are happening 
to make people know and understand. And then he comes and he shows up. And what does he do? He gathers once again his elect. Verse 31, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And remember in this context, the elect, we're talking about Israel. That's the fulfillment of prophecy. See, in Deuteronomy 30, Jesus said, excuse me, I should say God said, I'm going to come gather you from all the corners of the earth, Israel. And that's exactly what you see happening right here. So, Christ has come. It's the second coming. And now he sets up his millennial reign. Now, the question comes up, what are we going to do with this information? Well, that's the way we have to ask. See, this information is supposed to have a purifying effect on you. You know what's coming. It's supposed to give you a deeper perspective that what matters is heaven and hell and eternity. It's supposed to give you a purpose. That's the point of this. You want to be the focused, faithful, wise servant that hears this and then applies this because you can see the seasons changing in front of you. See, look at verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. See you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. You would not go outside right now and go up to the fruit tree in your backyard and look for blossoms and apples. You wouldn't. That's what happens in the spring. And when the springtime comes and you see the blossoms coming, you know that fruit will be coming in months. What Jesus is trying to say is, listen, look at nature. You can tell the season by looking at nature. Now he's saying, look prophetically. Look spiritually at the world today. And you can see what's going on. You can see that this world is falling apart. Verse 33, that the end is near. It's at the doors. This should spur us on in how we live and how we act. And to constantly remind us, it's not about the here and now. It's always about eternity. That does not mean that the things you're going through right now are not important. That does not mean that you don't get do a good job at work tomorrow. Or you do not get that project done. You do that. But in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, it's about Jesus. It's about focused on him. It really helps you keep that perspective. Verse 34, surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What is this generation will not pass away. Well, there's three different ideas on that. All of them are okay. It's not worth getting into a fight about because every single one of them carries the same mindset, keeping your focus on the Lord. Some people say this generation will not pass away. They say that word generation can also be translated race, meaning Israel. Israel will not cease to exist because God will always take care of them. Well, of course they will. Yeah, but it didn't seem that way 100 years ago. See, you know, when they were destroyed in 70 AD, Israel ceased to exist as a nation. Israel went through this awful holocaust in World War II. But then this miraculous thing happened in 1948. They became a nation again. So God's saying, don't worry, the Jews will always exist. Maybe that's one interpretation. Some people think it also means this. The fig tree in verse 32. The fig tree is a picture of Israel prophetically when you look throughout the Bible. And we talk about that in Matthew 21. Some people think, well, what he's really saying in verse 32 is when you see the fig tree start to produce fruit. Some people believe that's a fulfillment of prophecy there, of Israel becoming a nation. The fig tree came back from the dead. That's a sign. Or some people just believe that the generations, these people that are seeing these events happen, that this generation will will continue on, meaning the world won't be completely destroyed. Either way, the main point is this. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. That's what we have to stay focused on. And in this world we live in, We have to stay focused on the Word of God. 
We have to. Because look at verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. See, God's word is telling us. God's word is telling us that we have a purpose and a perspective that we're supposed to do with this. And if everything we deal with in this world, the only constant we have is God's word. I tell you, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize it has to be in the word. If it's not in the word, why are we even talking about it? Why are we even dealing with it? If I get into a spiritual conversation with somebody and and they want to start bringing up points that aren't even biblical. Listen, this has to be the foundation of what we believe and teach. This has to be. And when you have that foundation on God's word, everything else starts to make sense. Because right into verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We've used this example many times. When somebody comes up and says they know the day and hour, you know God's word to say, yeah, not true. Because I know God's word, and God's word tells me no one knows. So when I run into somebody who says that they know, I immediately know right then and there. False prophet. Stay away from them. There was a guy that used to pop out here to church, never came to church, attended, but would just pop into my office. He was a local guy, claimed to be a prophet of the Lord, and he always wanted to come speak to the church. And I would always say, no, something just wasn't right about him. He finally came to me, and I won't go into the details, but it's in the book of Revelation. There's a phrase in there where there's these things that are uttered that no man knows or understands, only God does. Okay, well, the guy came to me and says that he knows and understands. And he wanted to come and share it with the church. And I said, if no one knows or understands, and God says no one knows and will know except for him, and you're telling me you know something's not lining up here. Well, what happened was this guy started going around to other people in the church, and he was telling them, hey, go tell your pastor to have me come out and teach. Finally, I had to tell this guy, you're a false prophet. Because you're telling me things that the Bible says no one could know or understand. So if I run into somebody who says, I know the day or hour, no, you don't. Oh, I do. I had a vision. No, you didn't. The Lord revealed it to me. No, he didn't. Well, I read it. No, he didn't. You're not going to know. And that's an assurance because heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. So if my words will no means pass away, if God's word is the faithful, strong, true that will last for all of eternity, why would we not spend more time and energy in that? Because that will not return void, the Bible says. We need to remember that. We need to keep our focus on that. Pay attention is what he's saying. That's the key. Don't let your life get in the way of living for the Lord. So often we allow life schedules, calendars, appointments to trump everything. That's exactly what's going on. Look here at verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, there were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. He says it's going to be like the days of Noah. Everybody's just out there living life. And no one's really thinking about the Lord. Let's talk about the days of Noah. Can you go with me to Genesis 6? If he says it's going to be like the days of Noah, let's go back and talk about what it was like during the days of Noah. Genesis 6. Put yourself back in the position of Noah. The Lord's revealed to you that this flood is coming. 
Now, what we can piece together in looking at the Bible, the concept and idea of rain that we think of nowadays did not happen back during Noah's time. So Noah's been spending about 120 years building this boat. This is not just some little boat in his backyard. This would be a center of attention, conversation piece. People would see it. People would know it. You can't hide it. It's huge. And so the Bible also tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So it sounds like when people would come up and say, Hey, Noah, hey, what you doing? Building a boat. Why? Lord told me it's going to rain. What's well, rain? I don't know, but it's going to happen. So this idea... He's preaching as he's doing it that the people should understand and know something is happening. But they're so focused on life, marrying, giving away in marriage, eating, drinking, that they were not thinking about eternity. Does that not sound like us today? Now, to even go into more detail, let's talk specifically about what was going on during Noah's time, Genesis 6. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Stop. First thing you see going on in Noah's time is what? Population explosion. Okay, do we not have more and more people on this earth on a regular basis? Verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. We won't go into detail what that means. It's another study for another day. But what you can look at in verse 2, that's sexual morality. Guess what's all over around today? Sexual morality. Verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. That's where we get the 120 years we talked about. Verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does not verse 5 describe the world we're living in today? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great and the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. Verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both men and beasts, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Oh, boy, that's today. Verse 12, so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So when Jesus tells me in Matthew 25 that the end is going to be like the days of Noah... And I go back and I read the days of Noah. I see population explosion. I see sexual morality. I see wickedness. I see evil. I see violence. That's what we're living in right now. So the Lord is trying to tell us, wake up. See, the problem was back during the days of Noah, they were so focused on just living life, they ignored the big boat being built. They ignored the man preaching righteousness to them. The world today... The church today, Harvest Fellowship today, is sometimes so focused on living life that you don't even see what's going on with eternity right in front of you. We've got to get our focus back to where it will be. It will come on you and surprise you. Hence, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Many of you, when you left today, or leave your homes, you lock up your house. Why? 
So that way no one gets in. If somebody came to you and said, hey, you got a nice place. Thinking about breaking in Thursday, 2 a.m. You okay with that? Guess what? You'd be awake, ready, waiting, armed. Because you knew the time the thief was coming. So the point is, Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, get ready, get prepared. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be taking this unexpectedly. Because it's going to come and it's going to come upon you. Be ready, be prepared. Which now takes us to where we started, verse 45. Are we going to be the faithful and wise servant that's ready? Or are we going to be the evil servant that says, yeah, I got too much life to live right now? Get our focus where it's supposed to be. It purifies us. It gives us a perspective. It gives us a purpose. That's what we've got to keep our heart and mind focused on. Now, what I want to close with is this. It's easy when you hear a teaching like this to get you worked up a little bit. You start thinking about end time, second coming, rapture, and you're thinking about violence and destruction and the end of the world. Go back real quick, if you will, please. Take a look at verse 6 of Matthew 24. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Troubled. Do not walk in fear, worry, anxiety as you watch election results. As you flip on the news. As you see the world completely, utterly falling apart around you. Don't get troubled. What am I supposed to do? Verse 35 of Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word is the faithful. God's word is the foundation that we need. Let's close with this. Can you go with me to Psalm 91? There'll be times where the boys will get worked up on something at home. And we used to tell them when they were little, before you come out of your room in the middle of the night, because you're scared about something, first thing you need to do is pray. Just just you pray right then and there. Now, if it's during the day, because I want to teach them to go to the Lord. Go to the Lord with the issues you concerns. Now, if it's during the day, sometimes they'll get worked up on stuff. I've taken them and had them go read Psalm 91 before. Because it's a great psalm on just not being afraid. We've told them also before, if you're still worked up about something, grab your brother. Pray with one of your brothers. Come get us then if you're still worked up. But we're trying to teach them, take it to the Lord. Take it to God's word. What does Psalm 91 tell us? Verse 1, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lies waste at noonday. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the threats. Don't be afraid of the sickness. Don't be afraid of the night. Nothing. God is with you. We have ten people that live in our house. I know what happens when some type of bug gets into our house. It takes about two, three weeks to work through everybody. And when it happens that first night, I always go to Psalm 91. And it's like, okay, Lord, I'm not going to fear the pestilence that comes at night. I'm not going to fear the pestilence that walks in darkness. Okay, Lord, you're bigger than this. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it should not come near you. 
Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We have nothing to be troubled about. We know how this plays out. We honor his word. We put the Lord first. He gives us a perspective and a purpose. I want to be that wise servant. The wise servant that's thinking about eternity and how I live and how I act. Worship team, if we can come forward here for the final song. Next week, we get into Matthew 25, and he finishes up with two parables.